get out your sermon outline. And those of you that pray for me as the sermon goes on, now would be a good time to start. The, uh, I have been battling uh, asthma and allergy issues, and I've had a host of doctor appointments, and I have a bunch more coming. Um, <clears throat> we are in the second half of 1 Corinthians 14, another non-controversial passage in this book. Uh, I've come to it being reminded why I've never actually preached through this book before. Um, also wondering why I didn't assign this passage to somebody else. So, let's get into it. 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or, th- or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues but all things should be done decently and in order. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We need to be reminded of what makes the greatness of the gospel, the authority of your word, the power of the cross, the glory of Christ. We need to know the sufficiency of your word for all the problems of our lives. Lord, the passage before us is challenging and complex. It has matters that still cause controversy even today. And so we pray for grace that we might not be distracted by them, but rather that we might be instructed by them so that our lives and our church and our worship might be pleasing in your sight. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with the work of the famous American artist Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock made these enormous canvases, uh, and they were purposefully random. He disdained all composition, and he tried as far as possible to just throw paint at the canvas randomly. And despite his best efforts, of course, there was still order and structure that emerged. You still have to decide which color paint to throw. Which colors will you choose? And in what order? Which part of the canvas will you throw the paint at first? And as hard as he tried, order was subconsciously imposed on what he had hoped would be utterly chaotic. Jackson Pollock intentionally sought to be random. It was a way for him to talk about the chaos of life and the culture at the particular moment in which he lived. And apparently, he was amazingly talented at throwing paint on large canvases. His cheapest painting, also his smallest, last sold for $25,000. 
and that was the print. The original painting is valued at 10 million. His most expensive painting sold for $140 million. It's like monopoly money. Now, Jackson Pollock himself didn't see that kind of money during his lifetime because he died in a drunk driving accident in 1956 when he was only 44 years old. And in the end, chaos and the loss of control came to epitomize his life, not just his art. I was reminded of Jackson Pollock's paintings as I was reading some of the ways that Paul deals with the Corinthian worship services. Because these services are chaotic and random and disordered and formless. They're messy and noisy and out of control. And everyone's talking at once and drowning each other out and talking over one another. There are sudden outbursts of speaking in tongues without an interpreter. When they had the Lord's Supper, the rich and powerful were given privileged positions and the poor were kept in their place. The whole thing was something of a mess. And they loved it. They thought their informality and spontaneity and randomness was evidence of their spirituality. And so they took pride in it until the Apostle Paul shows up. And he teaches them and us here that there are, in fact, some objective criteria, some fundamental principles that ought to shape how Christians worship when they gather on the Lord's day. And there are three of them that he mentions here. Before we get to them, let's back up a little bit and review what's going on. In other words, what are the problems being addressed? Paul is wrapping up a discussion which he began all the way back at the beginning of chapter 11. He dealt first with the breakdown of biblical role relationships between men and women. He's going to talk about that a little bit uh, more in this passage this morning. And he dealt with divisions at the level of social status in the context of the Lord's Supper. Privilege are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Others are being left out and had nothing at all. In chapter 12, he turned to the problem of division Uh, when it came to the way spiritual gifts were being used, and he used the metaphor of the body to explain that we should value our unity, we are one body, but we should also value our diversity uh, with the different gifts, we are many members. And then in chapter 13, he taught us that the operating system that runs the Christian life is one of Christ-like sacrificial love, without which the spiritual gifts are either useless or dangerous. We need Christian love to govern the use of any spiritual gift. And then last week in the first half of chapter 14, Paul picked up where he left off at the end of 12 and resumed his discussion of spiritual gifts, getting very specific, dealing with the gifts of tongues and prophecy and correcting some abuses and misunderstandings. So Paul's reminded us that if the church is to be built up, then ministry must be intelligible. It must be the communication of the truth of God, the word of God in a way that everyone can understand. And now he's trying to tie all the loose ends of this discussion together since all these problems seem to be coming to a head in their worship services. And he gives us some very important, very practical principles about how worship is to be governed. And the first principle which he's already covered at length, is the principle of building up. The principle of building up, verse 26. We've seen this principle before, and here it is again. Verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now let's pause for a moment. Let's acknowledge that there are traditions in the wider church that have latched on to verse 26 and reasoned from that one verse an approach to worship that's totally free form. And anyone can speak and anyone can say anything and they all bring their contributions 
sometimes all at the same time. And there's traditions in the wider church that seek to practice that. If you were to go, for example, to a Quaker assembly, they try and find ways to implement verse 26. So they'll sit in silence until someone is moved to speak or sing or preach or do something. Sometimes an entire service will pass in silence because no one is moved to speak or sing or do something. If you were to attend a Plymouth Brethren service, they have no pastors. People bring whatever contribution as they feel led. Now, like most denominations, including ours, these churches are filled with people who love the Lord and some who don't. But either way, let me say, I think it's unwise to take one verse and make applications like that without paying attention to what the rest of the New Testament teaches about worship. We know, for example, that the first Christians shaped their worship services on the pattern you would find in a Hebrew synagogue. And so in Acts 2, we're told Christians gathered for worship. There were a number of basic elements. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We also have New Testament evidence of hymns, psalms, spiritual songs being sung, and creedal statements being made. There's things that Paul is quoting that are familiar to the churches as they sang and prayed and confessed their faith. So there is this fundamental, rather familiar, and it would even look rather familiar to us, basic pattern of synagogue-type worship where the ministry of the word, emphasizing the reading and the exposition of scripture, corporate prayer, and the singing of praise is normally present in a worship service. Now, overlaying this pattern of worship is this secondary issue, and it really is a secondary issue, of charismatic gifts. The New Testament had not yet been completed, and God was still giving revelation, new revelation to the church through apostles and prophets. And so there needed to be space for those with new revelation to speak and make a contribution. And what was happening at Corinth, it seems, is that the regular pattern of uh, synagogue-like worship, where the teaching of the word was the focus, uh, was being pushed aside for this more charismatic, free-form element. And it's creating problems. And there's people who are using their spiritual gifts for public display and to make much of themselves. Clarity, understanding, and truth We're getting obscured. People are struggling to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And so Paul says, uh, even if there's lots of people with spiritual gifts and they're all waiting to speak, uh, that doesn't mean worship should descend into a free-for-all. No, he says, let all things be done for building up. The only way to build up the church is to teach the truth of the word of God so that all may learn and be encouraged. What should worship be about? It's not about emotional self-expression. It's not about putting one person over another. It's not about personal entertainment. Paul says it's about building up one another. Mutual encouragement as we learn the truth of the gospel applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So that worship that God will bless, worship that builds up, is worship that's focused on the truth as we find it in the scriptures. That's the first criteria that we need to use as we consider worship. One of the things I love most about this church is our commitment to the ministry of the word, to being a church focused on God's word. You want to be encouraged, you want to grow, you want to be built up, get into the word. So now Paul gets into three very different issues that all suffer from the same thing. Or rather, they all suffer because they're missing the same thing. And so Paul takes them on by introducing the principle of order. The principle of order. So we had the principle of building up and the principle of order. Starting at verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, 
Let each of them keep silent. Listen for that phrase. Keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Jumping down to verse 39. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So we get the second principle. There's principle of building up, and now we have the principle of order. And verse 40 sums up what many consider the PCA's theme verse, that all things should be done decently in order. If there's any verse that describes our denomination, that's probably it. It's not a bad one, but it's probably not the best one we could pick. But starting in verse 27, the apostle explains what he means here, what he means by decently and in order. It turns out in Corinth, there's three groups of people who are speaking when they should have been silent. And Paul ties them all together by using the same words as he addresses each group. So you see the first group in verse 27, and they're the people speaking in tongues. Apparently, there's a group of people who practice speaking in tongues at the church in Corinth. Except in this case, they're making a terrible racket. All of them are talking in tongues at the same time. Paul says, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and only if there's someone to interpret so that everyone may be encouraged. If not, verse 28, they should sit down, keep silent, and pray. Now, Before we get too down on those who speak in tongues, let me be clear that Paul is not saying that what they are doing is wrong. He's saying how they are doing it is wrong. Having too many people speaking in tongues at the same time without any interpretation for those who don't understand is the problem. And he gives some practical guidance. He says, basically, just a few of you take turns. Somebody needs to interpret Sort of common sense. Now, most of us know there is a lot of doctrinal debate over the practice of speaking in tongues. There are churches that require it, largely Pentecostal. There are churches that allow it, largely charismatic. And there are churches that prohibit it, largely the rest of evangelicalism. It's not a normal practice in the PCA uh, churches largely due to the lack of understanding, the very limited way in which it can build up the whole body, and the ease with which it can cause division. Now, there's many different views on how the Bible presents speaking in tongues. Most scholars argue that the tongues in the book of Acts, where people heard what was spoken in their own language, is very different from the use of tongues here in Corinthians, where it seems to be referring to some sort of prayer language. Now, to be honest, over the years, uh, we've had and still have several people who speak in tongues as a private prayer language, and that's fine. As long as it's not causing problems in public worship or in small groups, I'm not overly concerned. The issue in these verses is one of order versus disorder in the church. And the Apostle Paul says worship should be done decently in order. So if you're one of those people that speaks in tongues as a private prayer language, you don't have a problem with me. You may have a problem with someone else, but not with me. So uh, we just try not to get too wrapped up about that because it's a secondary issue. It's not a primary issue. Second group being disorderly in worship is a group of people who consider themselves prophets. Now, I'm not saying they are prophets, but they consider themselves prophets. For those of you who are wondering, and prove my 
uh, prophetic gifts. I've picked UVA to win it all. <laughs> so uh, now you know, nothing to worry about. Uh, I'm apparently not able to claim any great prophetic uh, gift. So anyways, the same rules that he's already laid out apply now to prophets. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Now remember at this time, new revelation still being given to the church. The New Testament is not yet complete. And God is sending his word through apostles and prophets to the church. So it's vital that the church is understood and had a place for the prophetic ministry as God ordained it. But those who claimed to be prophets had to be carefully evaluated. What they said had to be judged or weighed in light of everything that God's revealed in Scripture. Otherwise, a false prophet, which we know is a problem in Corinth, could begin to exercise control over the consciences of those in the church with all sorts of crazy ideas being passed off as a word from the Lord. Now, that still happens today. Some teacher with a winning personality and the gift of gab and a very bright smile begins to claim special insight and leads people astray. And sadly, in an age of celebrity pastors, this seems to become more common. But Paul wants us to be like the Bereans. If you remember when the Apostle Paul went to Berea, he was preaching, and the people there, the Bereans, Acts 17, said, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And Paul wants us to practice biblical discernment to study what we're hearing in the light of the word of God so we might not stray from the truth. But then look at verse 30. Apparently, the prophets felt that they had to compete for airtime, so to speak, and they began speaking over the top of one another, interrupting one another. Instead of edification and encouragement, they were generating discord and disorder and frustration. And he says there's no need for that. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Like any well-mannered conversation, when I'm talking, you're listening, and then I'm done, and you speak, and so on, and we go back and forth until everyone gets to say what they need to say, and everyone is heard. So verse 31, so that all may learn and be encouraged. At least that's how it's supposed to work. And then he says something very important. Look at verse 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. I want you to notice that phrase. There's this common idea that a spiritual gift is a prophetic utterance beyond the control of the speaker, that something just sort of overtakes you and you can't help yourself and you would just erupt in prophetic speech. And that may sound good to the Corinthians and certainly how some people today uh, think of spiritual gifts, but it is not the teaching of the Apostle Paul. The spirits of prophets are subject to, are in submission to, same word, the prophets themselves. What he's saying is you shouldn't be out of control. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And the word for confusion means something that's chaotic and disorderly. So confusion and disorder, according to Paul, is not a product of faithfulness to the scriptures. What is a product of faithfulness to the scriptures is peace. That's what the word of God will create in your life. That's what the gospel will do for you, brings you the peace from God to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that's what it should do in the church. It takes people who have no earthly reason to get along uh, to actually live in harmony, to generate peace between us and peace within us. And the word of God creates peace when it has its way. And the Corinthians thought they recognized in the chaos of their worship service evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. But Paul's reminding us uh, that he has told us what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So when the Holy Spirit works by his word, that's what he creates. It's one of the great evidences 
uh, that the Holy Spirit is at work. We see the fruit of the Spirit uh, at work in, in people's lives. And he creates peace, peace with God, peace from God. We embrace the truth and submit to the truth and live in light of the truth. So the fruit of the Spirit is revealed in the beauty of Christ-like character. So these prophets are having their speech weighed so that everything might be done decently and in order. Now, let me digress again. In your bulletins, you have a large insert that's entitled, A Pastoral Letter Concerning the Experience of the Holy Spirit in the Church Today. It was written and approved by the Second General Assembly of the PCA back in 1974. It's one of the first major issues we addressed as a denomination. It is not a binding communication. It's a pastoral letter. This is the wise counsel of the church. Now, I have time to go through it point by point, but I want to draw your attention to the end, right before the recommendations. That would be on the inside of the back flap, and I know it's small print. Let me go ahead and read that. It says, finally, the General Assembly would speak a word of caution against an obsession with signs and miraculous manifestations, which is not indicative of a healthy church, but of the opposite. The Spirit provides all that is necessary for the equipping of the saints through his presence and power in the lives of the regenerate. The true basis of faith and spiritual growth is the work of the Holy Spirit in believers as they are made subject, using the same word from Corinthians, to his written word, which is sufficient in itself for spiritual growth to complete maturity. Now hear this last line. The General Assembly would also urge a spirit of forbearance among those holding differing views regarding the spiritual gifts as they are experienced today. And what that means is in the PCA, we've allowed people to express differing views. But not everything goes. We have drawn a hard and fast line. And that line uh, that is there, and hear me carefully, is that there is no continuing binding revelation in the church today. All revelation that is binding on the church is to be found in the scriptures. So even if you think that God's revealed something to you and you're persuaded of that, that would only be binding on you, not on the whole church. And that means I can't tell you that you have to do something unless I can open the Bible and show you where it says that. I can counsel you, I can advise you, I can even persuade you, but I can't command you to do something unless the scriptures command you to do that. On the subject of prophecy, this is the line that we won't cross. Now, sadly, Paul isn't finished yet. There's a third group, and this is where I'm liable to get myself in trouble. This is what Paul says. I didn't write this, so take it up with him. Paul addresses a problem with the way women were functioning in worship at Corinth, and that's the third group that were being disorderly in worship, women. So let's go back and look at verses 33 through 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Really wish I gave this to somebody else. To... Anyway, we've seen one manifestation of this problem already back in chapter 11. There we saw some of the women were likely overreacting to the radical freedom and dignity they discovered in Christ when they believed the gospel. Paul is clear. The women are no longer second-class citizens, as the culture around them told them they were. They're now heirs together of the grace of life. They have new unity and equality in the service of the Lord Jesus. 
They've discovered Galatians 3, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel does. It takes people who are otherwise divided and brings them together and restores dignity to them when the world undermines it and distorts it and warps it. And as you believe the gospel and as you submit to Christ and trust Christ and find your identity in Christ, then all of us are enabled to submit to one another, no longer demanding our rights, but willingly serving one another. And that's Paul's message to the church at Corinth and to the women of Corinth. These women, it seems, really understood the radical freedom and dignity that's theirs in union with Christ. But some of them seem to have misunderstood the implications of that. And so here in chapter 14, they're being disorderly in worship. Now, here's the problem. We know there's a problem. And we know that it involves being disorderly. But we don't know exactly what the problem was. The text doesn't give us specific details. And that's why these verses are so controversial. Some think it means that women should never, ever speak in church. But if that's the case, that would conflict with 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4, which recognizes that women were praying and prophesying in worship. Some think that the women were asking questions and interrogating the prophets, wanting to know what the future holds, kind of like, is my kid getting into Harvard or something, you know, my life's going to go well. Um, And since most prophecy is about the present, demanding to know the future would be considered an abuse of those gifts. Some think that the prophets here were their husbands, and by publicly questioning the prophecies, they were undermining the principle of male headship in the home. And finally, fourth view, some think they were weighing the words of the prophecies and questioning the accuracy of their words, a role normally reserved for the elders and teachers. So they were undermining the leaders of the congregation. I happen to think that the fourth view fits best with the context of chapter 14 and with Corinthians as a whole, as we'll see shortly. So you can see why this is so controversial, because we're just not told what the specific problem is that Paul is correcting. Beyond that, somehow they were speaking out, and it was making worship disorderly. And so whichever view you take, and I put my cards on the table, I think it's an undermining leadership issue. Paul tells them in no uncertain terms, verse 34, that they should keep silent in the churches. Instead of speaking out, they're to be in submission. That's the word, same word, the exact same word, even in the Greek, that Paul used to describe the spirits of the prophets that are subject to the prophets. In other words, these women, just like the prophets, just like those speaking in tongues, are to exercise godly self-control In worship, there is a right time and a wrong time for the women to speak, just as there's a right time and a wrong time for the prophets to speak. Now, I understand that some of you may take exception to that. That's okay. Remember, you're to be a Berean. So search the scriptures to see whether these things are so. Judge for yourself. Dig into the word of God and see if that's consistent with the teaching of the scripture in other places. But here is, I think, a big takeaway. When you step back and look at this section of the letter as a whole, what Paul is teaching about being orderly in worship. He's saying acceptable worship, worship that's pleasing to God and good for us, embraces an orderliness to it. It embraces the good order of mutual respect and self-control as people submit to one another for the good of all. It embraces the good the Holy Spirit creates when he works by his word 
and gives us not confusion, but peace. So taken together, chapter 11 and chapter 14 teach us that women are to be full participants in the worship service. That in and of itself is radical. In most religions of that day, women weren't even allowed in the building, let alone to be a participant. But as a participant, they were not to assert themselves in such a way that it undermined the leadership of the congregation. Now, that doesn't mean that a woman can never be heard under any circumstances saying anything ever. It doesn't take back with one hand that the freedom the gospel gives with the other hand. It does place the oversight of public worship into the hands of elders that God has called and equipped to lead and teach his word. But somehow, and we don't know the specifics, the Corinthian women were shaming themselves and their leaders by their conduct. Which brings us to the last principle, which I think is actually the main point of the passage. Ultimately, I don't think this passage is first and foremost about tongues or prophecy or women or worship. But all those things are being used to make Paul's point about the principle of authority, the principle of authority. So we have the principle of building up, the principle of order, and the principle of authority. Look quickly at verses 36 to 38. <clears throat> we'll have to go quick. I'm running out of voice. The Corinthians thought they were special. They thought they'd found a way to worship that was better and more spiritual than anyone else. And Paul's correcting them, starting at verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Essentially, Paul is challenging the mindset that they think they're unique and special and have this privileged status, that they have insights that no one else has. Now, that's a problem we continue to wrestle with even today. Every generation struggles with this. It's what C.S. Lewis once called chronological snobbery. I, I get extra points for including C.S. Lewis somehow. Um, and what he says is we think we have new insights that no one has ever had before. In 2,000 years of Christianity, with all the great theologians over that time, it came to me. You know, forget Augustine and Calvin and Luther and all those guys. It's all about me. When that happens, when we allow that, when we get the idea that the new is always better than the old, that we have new insights, we become dismissive towards tradition and dismissive towards our own history. And Paul is telling the Corinthians, don't be foolish. The really spiritual folks among you, they're not looking for the latest, coolest, newest, next thing. The really spiritual among you, verse 37, will immediately recognize in what I am saying, the very command of the Lord. You don't know better than God. Submit to the command of God as it's been communicated by the apostles in apostolic scripture. That's the mark of real spirituality. It's not innovation, it's obedience. That's the mark of great worship. Worship by the book, worship under the authority of the word, worship that conforms to the command of God. But before we're done, notice verse 38. There's a warning there. And here's what's at stake. And I think this gets downplayed. I think it's actually a very serious warning. And here's why all of this matters so much to the Apostle Paul. It's not that he's especially bothered about the messiness of their worship. He's upset because he knows that a refusal to submit to God speaking in his word, a refusal to recognize the authority of Scripture, is ultimately a refusal to bow before the authority of Jesus Christ. And it will result in more 
than confusion and chaos and frustration on a Sunday morning in Corinth or in Leesburg. It will result in not being recognized, and not just by the church. If it's a persistent pattern of refusal to bend the knee to the authority of God, speaking in his word, it will result in not being recognized even by the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he comes to judge the living and the dead. To all who finally refuse his authority, who reject his word, who refuse to bend the knee to those who use his name only to make much of themselves, he will say to them on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you. And that's the great burden of the Apostle Paul. He wants us to be people of the book, people of the word, people under the rule of Christ. He wants us to cultivate that Berean instinct to run to the scriptures to see if these things are so, so that we don't stray from the truth of God revealed in his word. That's how we're going to be edified and built up. That's how all that we may do, both when we're together to worship or when we seek to serve him on our own or in our families, that's how it's all going to be to the glory of his name. And so we need these principles today as much as the Corinthians did. The principle of building up were to encourage one another through learning and being in the scriptures together. We're to seek the principle of order, not only in our worship services, but in all of our relationships with one another in a way that we serve and submit to one another. And in the principle of authority. Embracing the truth of Jesus Christ as Lord and bending the knee to that truth as it's found in the apostolic scriptures. And as we do that, he will be glorified in our midst. But even if we do all that, and clearly it's easier said than done, but even if we fully implement these three principles, we'll still be messy we'll still be broken, we'll still be hurting, we'll still be sinful. But now, it will be part of the messiness of an ordered church. No one should be surprised the church is made up of sinners. Look around. You just have to look up here. It's one of the admissions that opens the door to membership. In the very first place, one of the first questions we ask is that you can't save yourself. Uh, You know, I'm a sinner, and only Jesus can save me. Those are the first questions for membership, very basic. We're not perfect. We never will be this life, this side of heaven. At its best, the church consists of sinners who are sincerely but very imperfectly following Christ. And inevitably, the church are going to have some people who really aren't following Christ. Even the earliest churches were that way. Certainly Corinth was. People were proud of their gifts. They were unloving. They're unwilling to associate with some they'd look down on. Some were involved in lawsuits against each other. Some are getting drunk during communion. You know where the small glasses came from. Uh, Some are living in immorality. I have no idea if that's true or not. It's just... (laughs) Um, Some are living in immorality. Paul actually told them in chapter 11 that their meetings did more harm than good. That's a messy church. But the Apostle Paul wasn't derailed by any of that. He didn't give up on the church. He said these differences are necessary to prove who's genuine in their faith. The messiness is in line with what the apostles expected. It should be with us too. Why should we love The inconvenient, the messy, the painful, hurting, broken, sinful, local expression of Christ's body, which is this church. Well, first, we're humbled by those who are hard to love. You're all immediately thinking of who is he talking about? He's clearly not talking about me, but maybe that person sitting next to me. Um, God brings people of different backgrounds and ethnicities and socioeconomic status and spiritual maturity and dumps us all in the same room. And the church's diversity is a beautiful thing. 
And part of the beauty is that it grows us by connecting us with people unlike us, and in some cases, with people who are hard to love. Loving lovable people is easy. Associating with unlovable people in unlovable situations should make us marvel at the love of Christ. Because when you're comparing Christ to us, who are the people who are hard to love? It's us, all of us. It forces us to grow in knowing and sharing the love of Christ. And in this forced humility, we find beautiful displays of forgiveness, (coughs) compassion, reconciliation that we never would have seen apart from the messiness. We're humbled by those who are hard to love. We're also warned by those who fall away. Some of the worst things I've seen in the church, and I've been preaching pretty much full-time since 1991. Some of the worst things I've seen were caused by people who had fallen away or who were in the process of falling away from the faith. Seeing the results of their action was sobering. As a young pastor... When I first saw the problems in the church, I thought I was the problem. Some of you may have thought the same thing. I thought my work in our church was insufficient, or at least incomplete, and I was the reason we faced all the problems that we did, and it was emotionally overwhelming. And every now and again, it comes back, and it's still emotionally overwhelming. But then one of those wise old pastors that I'm so fond of and would like to be someday reminded me that Jesus died for the church, so I don't have to. And that was his sort of folk wisdom way of telling me that I'm not Jesus. And that Jesus' work in the church is sufficient and will be complete. And he's allowing us to face these issues for his own good purposes and to grow us in the faith. And somewhere along the line, I realized most of these people falling away, causing division, making scenes, being disorderly, are all struggling in their faith. And that should arouse compassion and not judgment. It should cause us to want to pray for them and to help them and to walk alongside them even when more than anything else you want to slap them. Maybe you don't. I surely do. If I had left the church at the first sign of trouble, I would never understood the root issues of these problems or the vital importance of striving in faith side by side with other Christians. We're humbled by those who are hard to love and we're warned by those who fall away But also in this process, we learn to love what God loves. The most important reason we love the church is that Jesus loves the church. Christ loves his bride, his holy ones for whom he died to purchase them with his own blood. If the one who had to die to make us holy is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, how can we refuse to love those who are sinners like ourselves? God's plan to make his grace known to the world is not for a bunch of perfect people, you know, to live together in perfect harmony and to dance and twirl on a hillside while they're drinking Diet Coke. Maybe the Diet Coke part, but none of the rest of that. But rather, it's for sinful people to cling to Jesus, even in the hardest and most desperate situations. God's light may not shine in every corner of the church, but it shines all around. And when the church looks to Jesus for help in our weaknesses, then powerful things can happen. Paul saw the messiness in each of these churches, and he still gave his life to building them up. The reason we love the church and all its messiness and all its brokenness is because it's there that we see God's amazing grace conquering our sinfulness and transforming us to look like his son, Jesus. And when the world sees that, then even the messiness of the church 
can make Jesus look great. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Thank you that I got through this message. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Lord, we bow before you. We confess that we often love ourselves in a way that lets us justify our lack of love for one another. There are truths here that are not easily understood, and even when they are understood, we often protest against them or apply them as we want to, as seems most convenient, or just ignore them. And though we claim the name of Jesus, our hearts turn elsewhere when things get messy. And though you have made us saints in union with Jesus, we've continued to define ourselves by our old life rather than by the new one we have in Christ. And all of that is because we've set aside the weight of biblical authority which directs our conscience and leads us to the obedience of faith. We confess that the authority before which we bow is not the authority of your word, not the authority of Jesus Christ as king and head of the church, but the authority of our own wants and whims, the authority of pleasure and laziness and pride. And so as we bow before you, we ask for your forgiveness. We pray for cleansing and renewing grace. Grace to embrace the truth as it is found in Jesus Christ, that we as a church might be to the praise of your glory, despite our messiness, that Jesus might be made great. And we ask these in his name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.